the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. To revolution and how you think about politics, race, and culture. And leading that revolution are your hosts, Charles Love and John Anthony. Wow. That's, that's fast. That music is going, like, really fast. Hello and welcome to Black and Right. I'm John Anthony, alongside my partner in crime, Charles Love. What up? What's up with you, Charles? You can reach us by calling 642-5600. We're streaming live on 560theanswer.com. You can also find us at Black and Right. We finally um, created a Facebook page, Charles. Yeah, it took a while. Took yeah, a while. everybody go to the Facebook page. I'm actually, we're actually streaming live now with, uh, from J. Anthony Speaks. Uh, Charles, we got, a, we got a really tough and the subject that we're going to be dealing with today, policing, law enforcement. I think it's going to be something that uh, what we're trying to do is you know, give the people such a rudimentary uh, aspect of what policing is, finding out a lot of the terms, you know, what, uh, what's, what's with a lot of the police brutality, as some have called it. Um, I'm excited about it. What about you? Yeah, it should be interesting. We got a, a nice mix of people uh, bringing uh, focus on different areas of it. And um, like he gave the number 312-642-5600 to call in. So we want people to call in who are members of the, uh, the Boys in Blue to talk about what they see and what they hear and people who may uh, have issues with oh. police brutality who's either experienced or just have something that they uh, hear from the guests that they don't agree with. They can call in and, and challenge, do some pushback a little bit. We want to touch every aspect of this uh, topic. Yeah, and you know what? And that brings us to our first guest, my good buddy, my friend. Uh, he looks like Santa Claus right now because he has like this, this long, huge white beard. Uh, Kevin Woodside is a retired chief from uh, Gurney, Illinois, and the founder of the BlueLine.com, an online law enforcement and public safety employment and career resource. You can follow my good friend Kevin Woodside on Twitter at, at Kevin Woodside. Kevin, welcome to the Black and Right. Good afternoon, John. Good to be with you. Thanks. Hey, I'm, you're, you're joining here with uh, my, buddy, good, my good buddy, Charles um, Love. Um, one of the things that, you know, thanks so much for, first of all, for doing this, because, you know, I know this was an emergency and you immediately said yes when I asked you to come on. But one of the things that I, I really want to start off the show with is, uh, cop suicides. Um, do you believe we're doing enough? And if not, is there more that needs to be done? And what's, what, what in your belief and what in your, your estimation is causing a lot of this? Uh, jumping right into the deep end of the pool. Deep. I told you. I told you when I called you, we're going to jump right off into the deep. <laughs> it is a. It's a tremendous problem, and it's a growing one. And the statistics this year are uh, are kind of off the charts. I mean, you look at the uh, the suicide rate in the New York Police Department, and it's unprecedented. It's uh, and you know, I I don't know that we we definitely aren't doing enough. Um, but we really do need, as a culture, a law enforcement culture, need to uh, to normalize asking for help. You know, the reality that you're not in this alone, you don't have to do it alone, and asking for help is strength, not weakness, is a truth that is uh, slow in taking hold in the in the law enforcement community. But it's such an important message. It's and it needs to. It just needs to saturate the culture in a way that uh, that it really hasn't yet. 
Well, um, I hope you listen to the show on a regular basis, if not do it going forward. But one thing you'll know uh, is that I talk about culture a lot. And obviously, this is a big problem we want to have addressed. But do you think that there's a separate thing in play for police officers then? Because, you know, they're people like everything else. So then uh, the population at large, because definitely this has increased a lot in the last few years, but it's all, suicides in general up 24% in the last 10 to 15 years. So are we just seeing a correlation between the two by what's going on in uh, society, or is it something specific to policing? Well, I don't know that I have data to support this, but you know, it is true, and data does support that suicides, divorce rates, you know, those issues are higher in law enforcement than they are in the general population. But I do think that uh, the conditions that police are under currently are, are just adding to the stress and making it more difficult. You know, the withdrawal of support from some communities, uh, in the case of the New York Police Department, they've been very vocal about the, the, uh, the feeling that they're not supported by, by their administration. I mean, that is just stress upon stress. And, that, and, and Kevin, and, and just, I mean, I, I think right there, I think you hit it, like, really hard. I, mean, I, I can remember my time of being uh, on the force and, we had some great leaders who like backed us and was was in very much support of us. How important is that to have the leadership, the the apparatus behind the office? Because you look at what happened in New York with Kevin with um, Gar- with the um, the Garner case, and the guy was fired, and, and the police chief fired him. How important is it to have the brass behind you? You know, it's essential, John. It's it's one of those things where law enforcement leaders have to have the courage to hold officers accountable and establish a healthy culture, uh, not just of use of force, but uh, emotional well-being, all of those things. Um, but they, they have to support officers that are out there doing their job. Police officers are going to be in situations where they're going to have to use force. And it's really easy to Monday morning quarterback situations. Um, but an officer needs to know that he's going to be held accountable. But when he does the right thing, that his bosses are going to have his back. Okay. Yeah, and you know, you, you look at what, what happened with the water incidents, the water being thrown. You look at what's happening with Antifa and, and how they just run ram, rampage and throughout the streets, and there's no, 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 no consequence. I mean, why, what, what would allow a chief of police and a and mayor and all of these people to allow just this carnage and chaos? And, and how would you have dealt with that in Gurney? You're talking specifically about the water incident? The, the water incidents and Antifa going through the streets, beating up on people, and uh, no yeah. no consequence for it? You know, it's it's just a truth that law and order, order in our society relies upon voluntary compliance with the law, right? Yes. And if you send out a message that encourages people to be disobedient to the police, to be disrespectful, then it just escalates and leads to forced situations and uh, that's that's how things got out of control. And, and, and there is a, a, a real fear that 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 responding with violence toward the police is a rational response. And it is going to lead ultimately to disorder because everything stays in balance because people are voluntarily complying with the police. Now, I, I look at the, the water incident. And those officers were praised for showing restraint, and then they were criticized for not responding uh, when they were uh, under attack or were insulted. And I think there's a fine line there. You have to, police officers have to bring 
uh, de-escalation and bring peace into every situation that they're coming into. And, and the force that is necessary needs to be in response to the force that's presented to them and resistance that's presented to them. So that's nothing new. You know, de-escalation has become uh, a training buzzword uh, recently. But, yeah. uh, you know, I've been a, I was a police officer for 30 years before I retired. And staying out of conflicts and de-escalating situations was fundamental to training way back then. Right. Well, uh, Kevin Charles here. Uh, we appreciate you being on, so I want to give you a chance to tell the people more about the BlueLine.com. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's, recruiting police officers is more and more difficult all the time, but uh, the BlueLine.com is a resource for, uh, for those that are interested in entering a law enforcement career. Uh, or public safety career, for that matter, fire service uh, opportunities are also uh, represented there. Um, but it is a, a job listing service that, in the Chicago area, is a comprehensive place for uh, for opportunities for police departments, sheriff's departments, uh, other other law enforcement uh, career opportunities. Cool. And lastly, you did mention that you uh, have been in office for 30 years. So what would you say um, that you've seen the changes are in uh, in the job from when you were on the force to today? Good, well, or, good or bad, just what's different about it? Yeah, you know, the challenges in the last few years, really since Ferguson, have really defined uh, the most significant change, I think. You know, in the community that I was privileged to serve in, we had a, uh, a large degree of, uh, of confidence and, uh, and support of the community. But I know that that has not always been the case in, in other places. You know, in my 30-year uh, career, uh, the first 15 years, we didn't have a single officer-involved shooting. Uh, the last 15 years, we had we had several, and so you know I don't know that that's uh, that, that statistic is indicative of uh, of the rest of the world, but it certainly colored my experience in uh, in my career. Wow! If you're just joining us, we're speaking with former chief of Gurney, Illinois uh, Police Department, my good friend Kevin Woodside. Kevin, and if you give me 45 second answer, what's the biggest threat to pol- the police will face in the next five to ten years? You know, I think the biggest threat to police is really a threat to our society, and that is if we don't get a handle on how to uh, support the, the police and develop a culture of accountability and trustworthiness between the community and the police, uh, that we really do run the risk of losing control of our society. I, mean, it's, I don't want to be dramatic and overstate it when you talk about the blue line between uh, between uh, order and evil, but uh, it, it's real and it it only works because because of voluntary compliance, because people are willing to follow the law, and there is a there is a uh, a feeling now yeah. that that, uh, that 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 may be in jeopardy. Well, we we got a lot way a lot more to do, and we got a long way to go to make sure that we don't lose our voice with policing. Kevin, I, I really appreciate you for joining us today. Uh, you've always been one of my, my favorite police chiefs. You've always been somebody that I could reach out. And, you know, as you know, every time I had issues or problems, I would reach out to you. Uh, guys, we were with Kevin Woodside, former chief of police. Um, check him out at uh, Kevin Woodside on Twitter and check out thebluelinecom uh, We need to take, take a quick bait, break. We'll be right back with your calls at 847-642-5600. You're listening to Black and Right on AM560, The Answer. I'm John Anthony. He's Charles Love. We'll be right back. This is Black and Right 
on AM560 with Charles Love and John Anthony. I thought we'd get some music on this one. You know, like some real, real music. Hey, I know we got a heavy topic here, John, but I got a question. Did, you get, did you? We've been off. We we didn't have a show last week because of football. Did you get a curl while I was gone? Oh, oh no! You know that's the, that's the conditioner. You know, I got engine in my <laughs> that's family. The, that's, so. the, that's the the black, that's, that's the blickerish, the black that's Irish. The blackish, you know. Oh, okay, just check it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Black and Right. I'm John Anthony, alongside my co-host Charles Love, and we're talking about policing today. A very hot topic, a, very, a topic that uh, needs to have a little bit more conversation done. Um, today we're joined by a good, another good friend of mine. Uh, I found him through Facebook. You know what? I found him through Facebook. I saw uh, there was a he, he has his YouTube channel, and uh, Eric Muldrow is his name. He's a former police officer and the founder of Cold Red Conversations, a YouTube channel that examines police's police use of force. You can find him on Facebook at Cold Red Conversations. You can find his show on YouTube at Cold Red Conversations. Eric, welcome to Black and Right. Hey, thank you for having me. First of all, why don't you begin to explain to us, you know, use of force is like the hot topic throughout the country right now. Yeah. And and I believe a lot of people don't really understand how ugly use of force is and how nasty use of force can be. Why don't you, Mm -hmm. to our listening audience, and we have a lot of police officers um, listening, so you may want to make sure you're correct on your terms of use of force. So why don't you give us us the definition of what use of force is and what it's not? Well, uh, just off the top of my head, as far as like a definition of what use of force is, is anytime an officer needs to use uh, force to bring a, a subject or a suspect into control or into custody. That's like a real basic uh, layman's term, layman's explanation. Did, did you see what... Uh, so, I mean, it's real, I mean, go ahead, I'm sorry. Did you see what California did with, with their new use of force law? Yes, I did. I, I've been doing a little reading. I hadn't really uh, followed it, paid a whole lot of attention to it when it initially came out, but I had heard so much controversy about it, so many people having differences of opinion on it. So I started doing a little reading and doing a little research on it myself. And what? Talk, talk to our studio. Talk, talk to our audience. What are you? How dangerous is this? And what do you believe it does to policing? Should all of fifty states and take on this um, new thing that California has done? You know what? Honestly, uh, after you, I heard so much pushback on it, and when they initially tried to change the use of force laws. Uh, there was so much pushback from the law enforcement uh, law enforcement agencies in California, thankfully so, and rightfully so, that they were forced to change a lot of their terminology. Because initially, I think it could have been so damning, so damaging to law enforcement operations and, and actions, especially in the heat of a, of a of a hostile event, a police contact to where they were forced to make some significant changes. And honestly, my personal opinion, based on what I've read so far, I think that the, I honestly believe that the, what I've read that it, when, it all, when it's all said and done, it's a feel-good measure. Okay. I honestly, and I think that there's a lot of it that has to be hashed out. There's so many variables and terms and, and vague terminologies that need to be hashed out in, in a court of law. But, and but do I think that officers in California right now need to be fearful of it? No, I do not. Because when I read it, it's, I hear a lot of similar terms 
that come from the primary case law that dictate law enforcement officers' uses of force, Graham versus Connor, Tennessee versus Garner. I hear a lot of the same terminology that is, that is pretty much being tossed around in general uh, uh, from those case laws. And uh, like I said, there are a lot of things that, that haven't been hashed out, but once there's another controversial use of force, then there's going to be a whole lot of litigation and things to follow because there's so many vague terms right now. So I, honestly, I'm not, I don't see, I haven't come across anything that should really rattle any cop right now that I haven't, unless maybe there's some information that I haven't seen. Hey, Eric, Charles here. Uh, I watched a few of your videos hey, and, and you talk a lot about culture, which is, you know, definitely my wheelhouse. Right. And everyone who uh, who listens to the show know I talked about that. So I wanted you to explain to our listeners how you feel the culture affects the issues of policing. (laughs) You got to do it short, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I'm going to do a cut me off if necessary because I'm, I have a tendency to talk. (laughs) (laughs) But man, it as a, first of all, like I'll just give you my experiences. My first initial taste into law enforcement came at Westville Correctional Center in Westville, Indiana. I know and it at well. that time, this, this was the early 90s, so it was a level four maximum security prison. I mean, they reduced it down to like a level two, but at that time, I worked in the maximum security housing area, and I came out of the Army, and I grew up in a uh, pretty diverse, well, growing up in, like, early on, I, I grew up in a uh, you know, kind of predominantly white neighborhood, but overall my military career grew in, yeah, I was in a very diverse area. But when I started working in there and talked about and trying to enforce laws, man, I got so much heat from them brothers from Gary and the brothers from Chicago. Hey, 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 don't mess with, a, don't, don't, don't mess with my people Gary. from GI. <laughs> hey, hey, it is, hey, bro, it is what it is. I'm being real with you, man. And, and as a, I, I say all that to say, as a black man in law enforcement. Really? That's and, perfect, because that was going to be my next question. So you can you go into that about being a black man and being a police officer and, you know, talk about that, you know, how that experience of both. Because people, we never really, when people talk about policing and judge you and say, you know, they, um, you know, act like quarterbacks and say what should have happened. They never, we never hear right, what right. black police officers say. So give us that experience. Man, as a black man in policing, in law enforcement in general, that that's probably uh, as some of the. I mean, today's culture is is rough enough as it is, especially being a white dude. I can only imagine being a white guy and being a cop. You know, especially today with a Black Lives Matter and groups like that. But as a black man in law enforcement, you are routinely looked upon as being like a sellout, the Uncle Tom, oh. the house N word, because you should be. You know, I mean, I've even had people look at me in the eye and say, man, why are you over here trying to hold me down? I'm, and I'm in the hood. I'm trying to stop these fools from slinging dope and robbing and stealing in, in their own, in the black community. And some of these people have, are so brainwashed, you know, by, by the criminal mindset that they look at, look at me at, or they look at a black officer as being the bad guy, even though he's the one who's actually trying to keep the peace. Now, this isn't a a general term. I don't want to make it out to be like, this is everybody who lives in the hood thinks like this, right? But there's a big enough percentage to where it can impact an officer's, you know, a state of mind. And just, you just know there's going to be drama. I, I, had, I had cats looking at me and I did my police work primarily here in Las Vegas. And I had, I had dudes look at me and be like, man, I don't know how you do it. These are white dudes, his, uh, Mexican officers. Look at me and just some days be like, man, I don't know how you do it, man. Every day, these guys, 
give you the blues. Did your views, did your views of policing change, right though? Thing. But did your views of police change from before you were an officer to after you were an officer? Um, say again? Did your views on police change from before you were a police officer growing up to after you became an officer? Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> knowledge changes everything. You, you know, most people, and one of the main reasons why I started Code Red Conversations is that most people have an opinion on law enforcement, on use of the force. Some of them are valid, but a vast majority of them are based in ignorance. And I don't say that in a way to mock or demean or put anybody down, but there's so many nuances and details that, that occur in a use of force incident. There's so many factors that play a role. A lot of people, when they talk about it, it's clear that they don't understand the threat perception that an officer perceives. They don't understand the dangers that, that are involved in every use of force yes. encounter that a police officer is involved in. Hey, and, hey, and I'm not saying all that. To, go ahead. Hey, Eric, uh, can you stay over for another segment with us? That will be great. Yes. Okay. Now, just real, real quick before, because we got to go to a commercial break soon. I can remember being a cop. Now, I'll never forget, I showed up to a, a cop, a, a scene with, um, I think it was three individuals, three offenders. I show up, right. and I tell the girl, guy immediately, get over the gal, sit over here. And then he goes... He don't like black people. I had a I had another officer roll up and say, "Well, uh, you do realize he's black." He's like, "He might be a little high yellow, mm. but he is black." So I definitely, <laughs> I definitely get and understand what you t- what you're talking about when it comes to being a black police officer, uh, especially with a lot that's going on today and and with all of the the police uh, enforced actions with with all of the social media and the cameras. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. So, Absolutely. you know, Absolutely. thanks so much for, for st- sticking around with us. Uh, we need to take another time out. Uh, we'll be right back with your calls. Come on, give us some calls. 847-642-5600. That's 847-642-5600. You listen to Black and Right on AM560, The Answer. I'm John Anthony. He's Charles Love. We'll be right back. Now, more of Black and Right on AM560. Here are your hosts, John Anthony and Charles Love. Welcome back. Welcome back to Black and Right. I'm John Anthony. He I'm is Charles Love. And we're talking about today about policing. We had our guest, Eric Muldrow. Why he hang up? Yeah, he hung up on us. I don't think he wanted Tell to talk Tell that cat to call back. I think it's the Las Vegas heat. That's, I think that's what's getting to him. But, but I, thought, I, thought, I thought you asked a, a, a very good question about the culture and policing. And then following that up with, you know, dude, it's really tough being a black cop in America. You, you, I mean, because you can't have an opinion. You're, you're ostracized. Uh, it, not just black. If you're any minority, if you've ever seen any of those videos uh, when there's some drama that's happening on the street, you see a per- any person of, uh, I'm going to use the term that you don't like, oh, God. any person of color, <laughs> any, well, person, any person of color and the treatment that they get. Because, you know, they most people feel like they shouldn't be on the side of the law. Right. But, you know, I try to look at it from a different angle. So I get that part. And, and, and that's why I wanted Eric, hopefully he's calling back, to uh, touch on a couple other facets of it. Because what I meant was, okay, you get what you just said, totally true. Everybody can see that. But I'm saying... There's a, there's a segment of the population, black people, who say this is what's going on. This is what's going on in our community. This is how blacks are treated by police. Well, if you're a pl- black police officer, 
I would ask you, but you, you're blackish. Well, but an actual black police officer, blacky lele. When, when he's not working, he's not in uniform, and he's walking the streets. He's a black man, right? right? So does he experience the same thing everybody else, or is it different because he reacts differently? Because I had a conversation with one of my white friends the other day, and they were like, "Why'd you get quiet when you say white white friends? <laughs> you got to whisper that so everybody can hear." So I had a conversation with one of my white friends, and her point was, you know, I talked to well, my thing is that the police treat black people differently and they're more forceful and all that and you know i want to want to make things clear so before we even argue about that let's make it clear so i said let's assume you're right my problem is if it's late at night and a police officer sees somebody run a stop sign or veer through through uh to another lane they pull them over you can't say the stop was done because they're black because they didn't know they were black when they stopped them right you can barely see so, into the right. vehicle so let's be really so now even if that guy's a racist once he stops them you know, then it might kick in. But you're saying it initially. So as a black officer, I'm saying, what are your experiences and in, in interactions not in uniform as a black cop? Well, you can you can ask Eric because he's back on the oh, line. Oh, Eric. Eric is back. Good. <laughs> so I want to ask you that. If you were listening, he probably wasn't because he was calling. Were you listening, Eric? Yeah, I just, my bad. Yeah, I just heard <laughs> what you guys were chopping up. I heard a couple of minutes up. Right, I so like I, the last about 45 seconds of it. Right, so I wanted to talk about that, both your experience. I mean, you told me about your views of policing before and after you were a cop, but I wanted to talk about your interactions before because people are always saying black people are treated this way, but when you're not in uniform, you're still a black man. And then the culture thing I was talking, because you made a video talking about culture, and I think it was kind of short because you were focused on use of force, but I think the point you were trying to go to in, in the culture aspect was Taking guns and all that stuff is not the answer because we got to change the behavior of people. So can you address those mm. two things? Yeah. Um, well, what do you want me to hit on first? I mean, you've been you, you, you hit on. <laughs> well, you were gone, so we had to, 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 to fill the time. Yeah, we we got to keep going. Come on, Eric. Uh, so right, talk no, to me I about any you. interactions you. you've had as uh, a black man in America with police while not in uniform or any of your friends or no, any other black cops you know. No, I can, yeah, I can go into detail. Matter of fact, I'm actually doing a presentation for a uh, local church and community group where that's one of the things I'm going to initially address is talk a little bit about my background. And one of those things was growing up in the 70s and 80s, there were, I dealt with racism uh, pretty routinely. I mentioned earlier that I was, that we grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood until I was about 13 years old. Then we moved down South and it was like the total opposite. And, uh, and I remember being stopped. I'm like eight years old walking down the street. And I remember being stopped by a white cop, two white cops and them basically telling me that I'm in the wrong neighborhood. I'm not bothering anybody. I ain't robbing. I ain't stealing. And dude just looked at me and was just like, what are you doing here? Why are you in this neighborhood? You need to, you know, and he just started, this dude just started cussing at me. This yeah. is a white cop. Now, like I said, we're, granted, we're going back to, like, you know, the late 70s, early 80s when this is going on. Things have changed tremendously. I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist. I'm not one of those people who think that racism doesn't exist. But I do. I think we lost him again. George, what are you doing to us? <laughs> George, 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 you're fired. He threw his hands up. <laughs> you know, don't, don't. There he is. He's back. But you know, you know, you know what, Eric. Um, one of the things that I, I don't talk a lot about, but one of the reasons why I became a cop was was, was because I actually was beaten by cops. I mean, like really bad mm. uh, in the city of Chicago. Wow. Uh, and one of the things that I always tell people, and, and you know, the way to change the culture, the way to change what's happening in police departments is to get a job with them and change it from within. I know a lot of people. You have a lot of people that that say, "Oh, we can't change it from within." 
Well, I was able to do that. I was nominated for a police officer of the year twice. Uh, I did a lot of good things. Right. I created a, a foundation to to go into communities with at-risk youth and change their lives. It can be done. It simply can be done. You know, uh, I, I re- really quick though. You know, you hear a lot about the shooting of unarmed people. You can, now. I'm, I'm going to give you thirty seconds, 30, forty-five seconds. I'll give you forty-five seconds to answer this. <laughs> I'm going to give you thirty seconds to answer this. <laughs> Okay. I think you took 12 of them. <laughs> you really don't seconds. want an answer then, basically, what you're telling me. But, but, but <laughs> let's delve more into this. What, what are the Supreme Court decisions that have, that, have rendered, that have been rendered that give the law enforcement this ability? The ability to what? Use force? Is yes. that what you're asking? Yes. You, you have, um, I, I believe I mentioned it earlier, you have Tennessee versus Garner and Graham versus Connor, and they, built, they basically set up the parameters around how and when an officer can use force. They are not necessarily, they're solid, but at the same time, there's a lot of gray because most police shootings, police encounters, uses of force are gray areas. And it's not as simple as if if a suspect does this and an officer can do X, Y, and Z. There's so many variables that play a role in it. So it's not a simple rule. Yeah. But there are some things that should be viewed and should be understood by those who look to say, okay, well, we're going to find this officer guilty or innocent. There's some, there are definitely, definitely solid ground for people to be able to make those decisions. Well, Eric, so and thank like you. I said, so given the amount, short amount of time, uh, yeah, I can't really give you a more. No, you can't. You're done. That. You're done. You hung up on us, so you're done. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, go check him out. Cold Red Conversations, YouTube and Facebook. Eric Muldrow, thank you so much and for joining Instagram. us. And Instagram. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, we're Eric. We're take a quick break. We'll be right back. On AM560, The Answer, black and right. It's the show the mainstream media doesn't want you to know about. It's black and right on AM560 with John Anthony and Charles Love. Welcome back to Black and Right. I'm John Anthony alongside my partner in crime, Charles Love. And today we're talking about a very controversial topic, policing. Uh, we're always taking your calls. I'm going to get this number right this time at 312-642-5600. That's 312-642-5600. You know, Charles, I had the chance to talk with uh, Heather McDonald this week. Uh, Heather's a Thomas W. Smith fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She's also the author of several books, including The Diversity Delusion and The War on Cops. During this, converse, this converse, the conversation we had, I asked Heather what motivated her to write The War on Cops. Talking to officers across the country and hearing what they were going through as a result of the false narrative of Black Lives Matter, Uh, hearing about the jeering, the harassment, the cursing, uh, sometimes the physical attacks that officers were subjected to uh, when they got out of their cars to make a lawful investigatory stop, and also watching what was happening with the crime statistics. Uh, in 2015 and 2016, this nation experienced a 20% increase in its homicide rate. That was the largest increase in half a century. And the primary victims of, of that increase in homicide, the 3,000 additional bodies that were killed, were overwhelmingly black. Wow. <laughs> Mouthful? Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting about that, uh, I don't know if, you, if she went on into other pieces. I'm, we'll hear some other clips. But I want to just touch on the piece about 
Black Lives Matter and the narrative. She mentioned something about that narrative being wrong. And it's way more wrong than most people think. If you want to push back against things that are going wrong, whether it's policing and anywhere else, you should. We're a free country, and you have an obligation to do that. But you need to know what you're talking about. Well, you know, mm-hmm. everybody who knows me, listen, knows I'm a numbers guy. I'm a crazy kind of like um, statistical guy. I love the numbers. I like to deal with reality and logic rather than emotion. And so that's an interesting trend with these numbers. And what we see is like she, the end of that quote was about crime peaking in 16. Okay. But what we don't look at is like let's take 10 years from nine, 2009 to now that crime is uh, murders have been shootings have been steadily going down. But the narrative about killer cops has been going up. If you oh, look yeah. at New York and Chicago specifically, let's talk Chicago since we're here and everybody knows what's going on. You know, we had protests about a bunch of shootings, people on the south side, Laquan McDonald. But the actual thing is, let's say in 2018, the police shot, uh, what is it, uh, 21 people? That's between killed and wounded, 21 people. Now, at that same time, we have hundreds of people killed. We have thousands thousands of people shot, right? And if you go back five years, the number was 45. So you go from like 60 to 57 to 45 to 23. And this year, it's only eight. So the number of police shootings are going down, but people are, the narrative that they're shooting people is going up. So reality is different from what they're saying. So, so Heather then talked about who should take the blame for the increase in violence. Ultimately, obviously, it's the criminals who are uh, engaging in these absolutely insane drive-by shootings in inner cities, uh, taking children's lives. I mean, you've had a dozen children in St. Louis uh, this year who have been killed just since June. Uh, But what is leading to the criminals feeling like they can kill more with impunity is the fact that the cops have retreated from a purely discretionary form of policing known as proactive policing, the type of policing that they're being accused of being racist for. So it's, it's understandable that they're doing less of it, and in a sense, that's how politics works. Yeah, it's understandable because it's not right. So let's go front. I'm not saying that it's right for the police to sit on their hands, but... We forget that they're people. So if you keep attacking them and saying that you're part of you're a bigger part of the problem than problem than the crime, then of course they're going to react. Right? There's a reaction to everything, and you have to blame. Say, I have no problem with challenging the police. I think it should be done. I just think that people focus more on the police than the criminals. So if a guy robs a lady and running away, the police shoots him in the back. They'll say he shouldn't shoot him in the back. And it'll be on the news for three days. And not one person in the media will say, well, maybe that guy shouldn't have robbed that strong arm robbed that lady. Can we, all I'm saying is, can we talk about both? But, but, it, but it, Charles, you hit it. You hit it on the nail. Have you noticed that all, it, throughout every police involved shooting, nothing is ever said really about what caused the incident to even occur? No, worse than what you say. If you were right, that'd be bad enough. You're wrong. They yeah. say something about it. Yeah. They forgive the person. They, I literally hear things like, so what so if he what? robbed a yep. store? So what if he carjacked somebody? Does that mean he deserved to die? I'm like, no, but we need to address. That's why I talk about the culture all the time, right? There's been crime yeah. forever. That's not yeah. the difference. But now we are condoning the crime. That is a problem. So what that he threw bricks through the window? Oops, I'm sorry. Too soon. We need to take a quick time out. We'll be back right back with your calls, 312-642-5600. You're listening to Black and Right on AM560, The Answer, with John Anthony and Charles Love.
back to Black and Right with John Anthony and Charles Love on AM560, The Answer. Wow, Charles. <laughs> Getting a lot of good feedback on this show. Welcome back to Black and Right. I'm John Anthony alongside my co-host, Charles Love. And we're talking about a very controversial topic, policing. Uh, we, As you heard, uh, we... We were uh, listening to clips from Heather McDonald, who wrote the book, The War on Cops. She also wrote a book called Are Cops Racist? Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) And she also had uh, a book called The Diversity Delusion. I mean, it it was a very good conversation. Um, Looks like we lost our call. I guess he didn't want to talk to us anymore. He hung up on us. And Ben had black friends. I wanted to hear what George said. That means black friend. But, you know, I wanted to hear what his black friend had to say. Quitters (laughs) never win. There you go, George. George. George, George, you're the man. You know that. You you have been I am actually aware of that. Yeah. You, I, except well, you know. for that eight four seven fiasco, but anyway. yeah, except for the eight four seven that you have me give the eight, the eight four seven number. But that's okay. You're taking the blame We're on not that. Lies, lies. You know, lies. <laughs> you know uh, we we got okay. Uh, I want to play one more clip for, with Heather. Okay. What do you think about that? You want to play one more clip with Heather? Um, you know, we then talked about who will be the most affected by the increase in violence. It affects most of all people living in high crime communities, and there are. Thousands, thousands, thousands of law-abiding bourgeois residents of those high-crime communities who come to the police community meetings, who beg the cops to get the drug dealers off the corner, to get the kids who are hanging out by the hundreds on corners fighting off the streets, to get the loiterers and trespassers off their front stoops so that they can feel safe going to the store, uh, it matters most to them, uh, and they have the same right to live free from fear as residents of more affluent neighborhoods. You know, yes. if, if we believe in, in civil rights in this country, it should concern us that blacks die of homicide at six times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. Yes. That is the civil rights problem that the activists should be concerned about. But, but it's not something that will stay confined to inner cities if this delegitimation of law enforcement continues, uh, because crime ultimately does spread. And, uh, well, again, sadly, it's, it's disproportionate victims are black. Uh, that's not always the case. She, she, she makes a good point. Okay. Unfortunately, it's the squeaky wheel syndrome, right? She's right that the majority of people in, in, in uh, high crime communities, in the black community, don't want the crime, don't want people hanging out on the corner or in front of their house, all those things that she talked about. But they're not, they're the ones getting up, going to work that don't have time to get involved, unfortunately. I think they don't. And the squeaky wheels are the problem. The loud voices that people pay attention to are the people who are saying the opposite. And worse, you know what my, you know where I'm going because I always talk about yes. it. My pet peeve is the white liberals who's in the suburbs, in the, in the, you know, affluent neighborhood, or in the affluent neighborhoods in these cities that say black people need this. They don't even know a black person. Uh, black, oh, okay, they bit, know bit, they bit, know bit, one. Bit. They're bit, right? No, they know one, and he's affluent, right? So they don't know anybody in the hood, but they, the people in the hood want this. Do you talk to them? No. So they make the noise, and the politicians like, well, they vote, so we listen to them, and who gets screwed? Heather's completely right. You know, my, my, my grandfather used to call them rabble-rousers, the people that get up in the face and cause all the, uh, the, the commotion and the attention. And when you look at a lot of these activists that are out there today, they're getting paid. I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. They're getting paid and to come after noble men and women who are actually doing a job. 
policing policing is thankless. I know I did it for six years. It's a very thankless job. Nobody. I mean, you get up, you have to be a counselor, you have to be a teacher, you have to be you have to be all these things, and then you get paid peanuts to do this. Right. You know, I mean, what gives? Policing police officers that are out there are flustered. They're frustrated. And I'm I'm afraid the blue flu is going to be a, a real deal. You know, we need to take another quick time out. We got to pay these bills, Charles. We got to really, really pay these bills. We'll be back with your calls. Come on, give us a call. Three one two six four two five six zero zero. That's three one two six four two five six zero zero. You're listening to Black and Right on AM five six The Answer. I'm John Anthony, and that guy over there with the gray is Charles Love. We'll be right back. to have your mind opened. The lies of the mainstream media are about to be exposed and the hypocrisy of the left is about to be revealed. You've tuned into Black and Right. This is a revolution in how you think about politics, race, and culture. And leading that revolution are your hosts, Charles Love and John Anthony. Well, welcome back to Hour 2 of Black and Right. I'm John Anthony. And he is Charles Love. <laughs> Today we're talking about a very interesting topic, policing. Why don't you give us a call? 312-642-5600. That's 312-642-5600. You know, Charles, when we, uh, when we left the last hour, we were playing clips um, of my interview with Heather McDonald. Uh, I, thought she, I thought she made some very valid points throughout the entire interview. Uh, I believe the interview itself lasted like 17 or 18 minutes. She told me initially she was going to just only give me 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And she went into, I think it was like 16, maybe 17 minutes. But one of the things I asked Heather was, why is it considered off limits for us to talk about the violence that happens in places like Chicago and Baltimore when it's black people killing other black people? This is what she had to say. The reason that I think uh, this is so taboo is because to talk about black victimization, if you're going to push it forward, that discourse, you have to also look at the fact of black criminal offending, because the reality is the people who are killing blacks, blacks are about 54% of all homicide victims in this country, that is vastly overrepresented, because blacks are, black males are 6% of the population, and that's who the vast majority of of the victims are uh, means talking about black criminal offending because it's, it's blacks who are killing other blacks. It's not whites, and it's sure not the police. Okay, that was uh, Heather McDonald, and she is. Uh, uh, what, what did she say? She, what is her info? So she wrote the book uh, "War on Cops." Uh, she, she actually doesn't have a. a she's a, a not still at immigrant. the Manhattan Institute. She's still at the Manhattan okay. Institute, but she doesn't have like an, a website. I, I I tried to prod that out of her. <laughs> uh, she didn't want to give that to us. But yeah, what, what because she's say? known enough, right? What well, you know, I, what, what I would say about the uh, black on black crime, um, it's not that I disagree with her, but I think it gets plenty of, of coverage. It's not that people don't talk about it. It's the timing of when they talk about it, yeah. right? So what happens is when people bring it up. So so okay. So let's push back against those people who who we agree with in the conservatives who talk about the police and, and things of that nature. Uh, I don't think people don't talk about it. I think people who are 
who have issues with police brutality and police bru- uh, um, shootings get upset because they think that you're bringing it up, you know, as a tit for tat, right? So you're talking about, I'm talking about this cop uh, doing this, and I think he's wrong, and you want to bring that up. So they just don't want to talk about it at that time. So it's just, you know, it's more semantics and it's more situational. Um, I think it gets coverage. It's not that it doesn't get coverage. It doesn't get coverage would focus on what the problem is, what's the foundation, and what's the solution. Right. But they talk about it, so I, I, I don't think I don't think it's fair to say that people it's taboo to talk about it. I just think that the way it's approached is wrong. But 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 I think that there you know it goes back to the 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 control of language, right? And I think that's what happens. But when a lot of people who have defined police brutality, it's not police brutality that they're defining, and and I believe that's where we get into this issue of. You know, social media and, and the, the advent of the portable phone where you can go and just snap a video. And I think, as, as I spoke to the chief earlier, and Eric, it's nasty. It's ugly. Uh, and, and a lot of people are trying to call it police brutality. But the officers that are listening know that it's not police brutality. And that, that, that's, that becomes a bigger issue and bigger problem throughout the communities. Well, I think the, one of the more of my points is that we need to... You know, we talked about reparation once, and I said that the approach is wrong regardless of what mm-hmm. you do, because that's all important, too, is how you communicate things, how Correct. you frame them. I think it's a mandatory, regardless of what side, you, what side you're on, to separate police shootings from police brutality, because they're two totally different things, right? Uh-huh. So you can talk about issues which you agree or disagree with police shootings and do the same for brutality, but they're different. I think that there's a bigger problem in, in police brutality that needs to be addressed than police shootings. The shootings, we already addressed the fact that they're down. And so when I gave those numbers, like let's say in a given year in New York and Chicago, they had 27 in a year, yeah. which is uh, rel- relatively extremely low. Like not, nobody wants more shootings, but that keep in mind that number was all the shootings. It doesn't separate whether the guy was shooting back at the office or what the situation right. was, uh, unarmed or armed. That's just total. So 27 is so low. Now, granted, police brutality situations may be higher, but if you address them together, you know, you kind of make the waters murky. So yeah. you need to separate the two. And if you want to address police brutality, that's fine, but don't put them together. But the other thing is you talk about violent crime. And you mentioned the media. That's very important. We can't have this conversation about police without talking about that. They are part of the problem, both the the advent of social media and the actual supposedly, quote unquote, mainstream media. Amen. And see, what we don't even realize is that violent crime has been steadily declining for 15 to 20 years. But because social media and the media keeps talking about it, the narrative changed. I had a real quick. I had an interesting conversation with my wife the other day and it wasn't even about police. And it came up and it was funny. And it shows how the media can guide stuff. And how people's memories are. So I'm watching like a history of hip hop on Netflix. Uh-oh. And my wife comes in and she's watching it. And, you know, she grew up in New York. So they, they, it's the late 70s, early to mid 80s. And they're talking about and they're showing like a party scene or whatever. She's harkening back to the good old days. Like, man, I remember the good old days when we could just party and have friends have fun with your friends and hang out and you didn't have to worry about stuff and everything was cool and look at you know the culture and look at all the crime and stuff that's going now and i laughed and so i googled it for i said you know it's funny that memory is a is a funny mistress and i said uh last year the number of uh shootings and murders in in new york were at an all-time low let me tell you about your nostalgia and i'm reading the shootings and the murders in in new york in the late 70s and early 80s there were years where they had a thousand murders. Same here in Illinois. They were five times as high as now. But the di- what's the difference is we didn't have social media and we didn't have the media, so you didn't see it every day. So if right. in your block and in your neighborhood one person got shot in two weeks, you know, 
it's not that violent like it is now, but every time somebody gets shot, it can be 15 miles from you, but you hear it and it gets into your mind yeah. and you're like, everybody's yeah. getting shot every day. That's the problem with the, with the white liberal who's saying, hey, I hear all these shootings. It's the, all of the shootings are the same to them because they're not around any of them. So they just think there's a lot of shit. They think people are dry like, like George said earlier. They think you just get out on your front porch in the hood and every 20 minutes like a carnival ride, here comes the scheduled shooting. Well, George would know he's from the hood, yeah. right? You know, but I'm glad, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad you talked about the, the police shootings because I, Heather didn't explore how actual data about police shootings should be used in training officers. Roll yeah. it. Police academies try to give officers as realistic a training environment as possible of what to do with active shooters, how to make car stops, uh, you know, how to enter a house uh, without getting shot yourself. And, uh, you know, also shooting scenarios. There's a lot of shoot-don't-shoot video simulators that people are put through uh, to try and uh, hone their instincts and make sure that they're not making bad shoots. And, you know, what's interesting is that the data shows, this is from liberal criminologists, that uh, officers are, when you put them in these simulators, they're, they're not more likely... Uh, to shoot unarmed black suspects than unarmed white suspects. In fact, if anything, they they wait longer to shoot an armed black suspect than an armed white suspect because they're so worried about losing their job and becoming the latest video sensation on CNN. Yeah, that's true. There's a um, black um, professor who uh, wrote about that from Harvard, uh, Roland Fryer, I think is his name. I have to look it up. Uh, during the break or something, but he wrote about that. That's true, but if you're talking about race, here's the other factor, too. Um, I uh, talk about how I think in 2017 there were 900 or so people shot and killed by the police. Of those, 67 of them were unarmed. That's nationwide, right? Yeah, nationwide. Of those, 67 or 69 of them were unarmed, right? So here's the interesting thing. Whether you think of that, we need to investigate it. If the cop is wrong, they need to be locked up. But here's where the media shapes things. So we got 60, some odd, 69, let's call it 70 people shot unarmed. We need to investigate that. Here's the problem. Of those 69 to 70, 13 of them were black. Uh-oh. The problem is all 13 of them make national news. So we know their names, right? Uh-oh. But so, so you got 70. That means you leave in another 50, some odd, 57 or so that were white or other, and we don't hear about any of those. So the point is that the media is trying to twist a narrative, and that's the problem. So the layman who thinks this is the problem and thinks people who shouldn't be shot unarmed, which is true, like, man, they're just gunning down black men. Look at all these 13 black men who have been shot. They don't know there's another 57 who were white that were yes. shot. Hey, that sound of the music means we need to take a break. We'll be back with your calls. Give us a call, 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600. You're listening to Black and Right on AM560, The Answer. I'm John Anthony. He's Charles Love. We'll be right back. Black and Right continues on AM560. Once again, here are your hosts, Charles Love and John Anthony. So, do we need to do a Joe Wall show in order to get the good music? Come on. Give us a good music. Oh, you want some rock? Yeah. Uh, uh, who? Come on, George. Uh, uh, who? <laughs> Welcome back to Black and Right. I'm John Anthony, alongside the, great, the bearded one, Charles Love. 
And we're talking about, again, a very controversial topic, policing. We've had a lot of different discussions. We've spoke with police chiefs. We've spoken with Heather McDonough, Eric Modros with Co-Red Conversations. Uh, give us a call, 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600. Charles, before we go to the call, you, there's something you wanted to t- talk about from the last segment. Yeah, Heather was talking about uh, studies where police were less likely to shoot blacks, and I, and I referenced that. I'm like, I had something there, and I wanted to try to find it. So there was a black economics professor at Harvard. His name is Roland Fryer. He did a study, and the interesting about that, you know he's not biased because he did it to prove that police were more likely to shoot blacks. So he did a study over 15 years in 10 studies, in 10 cities, I'm sorry, and what he found was in these 10 cities that police were more likely to fire their weapons without having been attacked first when the suspect was white, right? Oh. And then the summation of it was that over 16 years, 1.6 total arrests were made and the officers only fired their weapons 507 times in 16 years in 1.6 million arrests. But you don't hear that kind of stuff, right? Oh. But now he did say, like, what's my point? That blacks did experience a higher percentage of police brutality. So that's why I say separate the shooting from yeah. brutality, focus on the brutality, and then maybe we can come to some solutions, but stop just screaming every time somebody shoots without looking at the situation. I think we should post that up on the black and right side. On because it's also in my, I'm actually reading it from my book, We Want Equality. Let's do it. All right. And you know what? That brings us to our next guest, uh, Dr. Michael Slosher. He's the director of the Police Training Institute, which is which where I'm a graduate of at the University of Illinois. He holds a master's degree in public administration from Governor State University, a master's degree in legal studies from the University of Illinois, and a doctorate in education from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He retired as a lieutenant from Rantucky, Rantoul Police Department, after 20 years of service. Dr. Slosher is credited for groundbreaking breaking efforts towards police reform through implementation of innovative curriculum for improving police practices. Dr. Slosher, the meanest guy I know, welcome to Black and Right. Hey, how are you doing? And, and it's nice to talk to the best recruit that ever graduated from the University of Illinois Police Training Institute. So the, honor, the honor is mine. Now, you know, you probably just think I'm using my verbal judo skills. I do. But no, do. I'm, I'm, I'm sincere. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> uh, well, t- talk to our listeners about the Police Training Institute. What is the goal and mission of Police Training Institute? Well, we do things a little bit different than some academies, but I can't say all. I don't really know what every academy is doing. But we really focus on scenario-based training. And I think what we do probably better than most academies, again, I don't know what every academy is doing, is that we have 84 hours of scenario-based training where the majority of them will involve non-escalation and de-escalation training. So we have trained role players that are also trained in these methods and techniques. We train our recruits in them, and then the role players know how to respond based on what the officer's doing, saying, tone of voice, things like that. So that's a big part of it. But, of course, we also have to practice the tactical skills. They need to know the arrest and control tactics and firearms and stuff like that. And another emphasis is community policing. And we really, really emphasize the importance of what one individual officer can make in gaining the trust of citizens. And that is what we call non-enforcement contacts. When it's not a traffic stop, when it's not a domestic, when it's not a call for service, get out of your car, get to know people as people, and let them get to know you as a person 
and not just the cop. Right. So that's kind of the premise of, of what we do, but we also have, you know, several um, other optional courses, and we emphasize things a little different than other academies, and oh, I could talk about those if you'd like. Don't I remember, you know, the late, late-night hours of, of, of all of those scenario-based trainings? But talk about, talk a little about that, about the de-escalation and communication skills, which is a huge part of your scenario-based training. Um, I know. I know you had a perfect example. You and I had talked. You had a perfect example with the Sandra Bland incident that that occurred. Can you talk more and, and yeah, let our sure. listening audience know about that? Sure. So, uh, one the thing about the Sandra Bland incident, I used that video in class to show recruits how not to have an interaction on a traffic stop. And there's there's certain. It, it, I'll just I'll just give you a little bit of the philosophy and, and maybe an example of how this could have gone differently or in other situations similar to that. So and we, we, have, we want people to understand, officers to understand, that when they interact with somebody and if they seem angry at you, even saying things personally about you, they're not really angry at you. Mm-hmm. They're mad at the situation or they're mad at themselves. You know, on a domestic, they're mad at the situation before you got there. There's, you know, other things involved before we even arrive. So if we just don't take it personal and realize that, hey, I don't have to get angry back. They're not angry at me. So we have what we call um, respect and empathy, which is a big emphasis on what we do. But we know it's sometimes it's a little bit hard to have this respect or empathy for somebody when they're up in your face, MFing you, and you know what I mean oh, by that, yes. right? Not a big cusser. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, so somebody's up in your face, yeah, sloths are you, MF, and blah, 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 you know, but I still have to show respect. I still have, still have to show empathy. So how, how we do that is we don't call it necessarily, I'd rather people have respect and empathy. I'd rather people understand that even though we're interacting with somebody that is in a bad moment in their life, people have you know, alcohol problems, drug problems, relationship problems, financial problems, and we should empathize with where people are coming from. But if you're not feeling it because of the the scene, because of the craziness that's going on, we have what we call tactical respect and tactical empathy. Because if we can do this as a tactic and know that things are likely to de-escalate or keep from escalating, then we have a much better chance of gaining that cooperation. So where, where officers will have certain things that they want to say when they walk into a domestic, they might say, hey, calm down, sit down over there, shut, you know, and I'm just giving you examples. That's no verbal cut, judo. Right? That's not verbal judo. Yeah, right. No, that's, that's like verbal judo on opposite day, right? So that's not verbal judo. What, those are what things not to say. Those are anti-peace phrases. But a big part of what we need to learn or what or, um, Dr., the late Dr. George Thompson called deflection phrases, and they're also called, in other lines of work, empathy phrases. So if, if I stop somebody on the street, let's say I stop them for, they match the description of somebody that, you know, committed a crime and it just happened and they're in the area and I have to stop and talk to them and they're angry and they're yelling, they're cussing at me and they, you know, I, rather than just telling them, hey, you need to stay here, you don't have the right to leave, if you do, you're going to be arrested. You know, I might say, you know, hey, sir, I, I see you're upset because the police are stopping you and you know what? I'd probably be upset, stu- up to, upset too, and I can appreciate what you're saying, but if I could just get some ID from you, you know, I just want to make sure, get you cleared and get you out of here as quick as I can. But by saying things like, you know, I can see where you're coming from, I, I, can, I can appreciate that, I, I understand that, I'd probably feel that way too. A lot of those deflection phrases will de-escalate things. And, so uh, if Michael, you think about... Go ahead. I'm sorry, this is Charles. Yeah, I want to ask you a question. You mentioned uh, 
Uh, you know, we hear a lot about bias, and, you know, most of the time they're talking about racial bias, but, of course, there's situational bias. And uh, you talked about the importance of training in, in, in different scenarios, which obviously is important, but I think that in any kind of job, repetition of that training is key. So wouldn't you say um, that there's an issue and a difference between, talk about between police officers that work in different scenarios and see different things on a daily basis. So you go through the proper training, which is key, but one officer works in a, in a high crime area, so they see all these scenarios in real life compared to the training on a regular basis. Well, another officer may not see that and how that may impact what they do when that real scenario happens. Yeah, that, see, you're, you're, man, you, you are on the same page as me. What I think, because we, we get this initial training, by the time the recruits graduate and watching them in their scenarios and videotaping some of them and we're seeing them not taking things personal, not getting upset, still say, staying safe, and still acting when they need to act if things do get violent. But once they leave, there's a couple of issues, okay? One is the culture of the department, okay? They need to fit in with that culture. Different departments have different cultures, Different shifts on departments have different cultures. And, you know, you want to fit in, especially if you're a probationary officer. And But I would like to think that the new and upcoming future of policing, we're headed in the right direction. The other thing is... Hey, hey doctor, doctor, we, ho- hold that thought. We have to take a quick break. Um, we can hold you on. We can yeah. hold you over for the next segment. And finish that thought. Sure. Finish that thought. Uh, we need to take a quick time out again. Uh, we'll be back with your calls at 312-642-5600. If you disagree with something the director's saying, give us a call. You're listening to Black and Right on AM560, The Answer. I'm John Anthony. He's Charles Love. We'll be right back. This is Black and Right on AM560 with John Anthony and Charles Love. Welcome back to Black and Right. John Anthony alongside of Charles Love. We're talking about policing. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Michael Slosher, who's the director of the Police Training Institute in Champana, Champaign, Illinois. Uh, director, you, you, you had a thought, but before you hit that thought, um, one of the things that I, I, I think that needs to really... Uh, be spoken to the to the public is you know they don't understand things like uh, resistant arrest what is resistant arrest what does it look like how how do you know when you've you've seen it and and it, it, it's just really not defined and the media takes it and they take incidents that's really not may not be a resistant arrest and they make the cops look bad what is resistant arrest okay so if i have uh the lawful right to arrest somebody and let's say I'm, I'm and, and I'll, I'll give you an example of what it is, and then I'll give you an example of how we use de-escalation to, to keep things from getting that way. Can yes. I do both of those things? Yes, yes, you can. Okay. So if someone is under arrest, and just to give you an example, officers are, the majority of officers are good at talking to people, and they're able to use these de-escalation skills. In fact, depending on which study you read, 87 to 90% of all arrests, there's no physical force used at all, 98% of all citizen contacts, no force, and the odds of an officer shooting somebody, firing their weapon at somebody in the line of duty is in the single-digit percentages, depending on which study you leave. But it does not make good news to officers walk into a violent domestic and talk the person into cuffs, which happens most of the time. Yes. But if I am placing you under arrest, I'm going to explain to you that, sir, you're under arrest, and then the reason you're under arrest, and I may, I may make contact with them first. Just, you know, I'm not doing any force other than grabbing a hold in case they resist, so I'm in a position to control them without having to get 
too high of resistance by doing certain standing control holds. And so if I can talk them into a rest and turning around and putting their hands behind their back, then, and they're not, you know, resisting at all, then that, that's a cooperative person. And there's different levels of resistance, right? Somebody yes. could be tensing up and not allowing me to place their hands behind the back that I would use certain control tactics and maybe not too high of a level. There's some where they might pull away from me and I have to engage. Um, there might be running away from me. Uh, but director, if, what, what about an officer advising someone to step out of the vehicle? Yeah, so if, if, I'm, if I have a reason to, for someone to step out of the vehicle and, you know, you have to remember that driving is a, is a privilege. It's, it's not a right. And, you know, I need to see certain things. I need to see your driver's license. I need to see your insurance. And I need to see that you're a valid, um, you know, you have a valid license. And, you know, if I can't get that cooperation or let's say that I see something in the vehicle that looks like it could be contraband or, you know, maybe I saw somebody um, making, you know, certain, you know, movements that looked like maybe they were, um, you know, I, I think maybe they were, hopefully they weren't, but maybe were reaching for something and maybe they have something in there that I think might be dangerous, um, then, I have the right to remove them from the car, and but I'm going to use my tactics to get somebody out of the car. You know, I may have um, a warrant for their arrest too. Right. But you know, so you know, just the simplest thing to do would be, if you don't feel like this is a valid arrest, is is you know, you still have your day in court, is to just you know follow along with what the officer asks you to do. You I, know, I, I, stops, I have one more. What what about the you hear the phrase? Why don't cops shoot to injure or shoot the gun out of somebody's hand? Can you explain this and why it's a dangerous <laughs> thing to do? I'm sorry. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting concept. And and if it, boy, if I was like John Wayne or Clint Eastwood and I could shoot a gun out of somebody's hand, that would be ideal. Okay. But the goal in use of of when you have deadly force, the use of deadly force, the goal is not to kill. Right. The goal is to stop the threat. But if can, can you say that a, one more time? Because I think that that is crucial. Okay, so in a deadly force situation, my goal is not to kill that person. My goal is to stop the threat. Once that threat has stopped, I am no longer shooting or doing whatever action I did in that deadly force situation. But if the best, the, the most likely way to stop a threat is to shoot someone center mass. And to be able to shoot somebody in the leg or shoot somebody in the hand and and is, is, is difficult for one thing, but that does, that's not as likely to stop the threat. People can still fight. They can still come after you. They can still run after you with a knife and things like that. So the goal is to stop the threat. And so that is the deal for deadly force. Can you give a couple examples of the, uh, some of the high-profile cases that we, that we hear people uh, debating in the public? where you think the officer used uh, maybe one or two where they used the proper force even though they were in trouble, and one maybe where they did not? Um, gosh, I, I don't have anything. <laughs> Putting you on the spot, right? I, Let's I, talk about yeah, Eric Garner. You know, you know, John wants to talk about Eric Garner. No, Eric Garner. That's a, that's a yeah, very yeah. important one. Okay. So Eric Garner was the uh, infamous, what was the tactic? The Pull down or the chokehold? <laughs> the chokehold, right, yeah. So the... I, if I am going to analyze that, see, this is difficult because I am a use of force expert. If I'm going to analyze that case, um, I, I need more than the video, but let's just say that, let me explain the difference between um, something that could be used on an active resistor versus deadly force for you a You have 15 hold. seconds to, to do it. <laughs> okay. 
So if I can if I can get somebody in a um, in a lateral vascular neck restraint where I am cutting off the blood on the sides of the neck and getting them under control and perhaps the worst thing is going to be they're going to go unconscious especially you know you have to have the training though if I'm going to the front front of the throat then that should be used only in deadly force situations and I can see where people can look at that and said well it looked like he was trying to use some type of a seatbelt holder directive slasher thank you so much I'm sorry yeah. to cut you off but we got to go oh, to a heartbreak. Man. Listen to Black and White on AM560 Answer. We'll be right back. And now, more of Black and Right on AM560. Here are your hosts, Charles Love and John Anthony. Welcome back to Black and Right. I'm John Anthony. He is Charles Love. And we're talking about policing, but, you know, uh, I want to take it a, a, a little different way with the, the next guest that we, we, we're going to bring on. Um, I wanted to talk about policing, but I also want to talk about the community aspect and how community gets involved. Uh, and our next guest is a really good friend of mine. His name is Jamal Cole. He's the founder of My Block, My Hood, My City, a wonderful organization that helps teenagers overcome the poverty and the isolation they face, boosting educational attainment and opening them to opportunities that make a difference in their lives. You can follow him at MBMHMC on Facebook, and uh, then same as on uh, Twitter. Jamal Cole, welcome to Black and Right. Hey, thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. How y'all doing this afternoon? Hey, we're doing really great. great. Hey, talk to us about your organization. What what led you to start an organization like My Block, My Hood, My City? And I still want my sweatshirt. <laughs> I got you, man. I wasn't trying to start an organization. I mean, some of my ideas have become initiatives and they the programs, but really it just came to, you know, me, um, wanting to take action now and being tired of waiting for big city government or complaining that the government's messed up, the city's messed up, the weather's messed up. I've come to realize that my philosophy is messed up. So instead of blaming stuff on other people, I'm like, what can I do to make my blog better? And I just started getting involved and sharing that kind of stuff on social media. And that created a ripple effect. And, um, and people started joining in on, on what I was doing. And, and you're doing great things. Talk to us a little about the men's survival summit that you, you, you've been putting together. Yeah, well, a lot of moms stopped me at the gas station on 83rd and State, and they said, hey, Jamal, you know, will you talk to my son? Um, he's a good kid. He's just, uh, you know, my, we, we got a divorce. You know, um, you know, he's hanging out with the wrong crowd. He's going down the wrong path. You know, will you, um, will you mentor him? Do whatever you can. You know, and they, um, and they grabbed my hand. And so we hosted a Young Men's Survival Summit at the top of the Hancock because a lot of kids have never been downtown. They've never seen the lake. They've never waited for a taxi. They've never been on an elevator. The whole worldview was shaped by North Lawndale or Roseland or South Shore. Um, and so they're really isolated, and that's tragic. So we wanted to host a, a 24-hour um, summit where young men could have, you know, a series of workshops and just a time to event, you know, get away and just see some positive role models. We had a cooking class. You know, we had a boxing class. We had a know-your-rights training. You know, we, um, and we stayed there overnight and just got to vent and have fun. So we had a freestyle competition that I won. I was at all, but it was a good time for people to get away and just, just, just get to meet people from different sides of the city. Jamal, you do so many great things, and I, I, I've been following you from afar. I, I knew you during my time when I was uh, in the legislative body. We met when you were working, uh, trying to have better education. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's great to hear that you talked about know your rights. Uh, working with the Chicago, are you working with Chicago PD in that manner? Right, correct. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, a lot of uh, Chicago Police Department they take. They've taken part in a lot of our youth-led tours where we, um, you know, we lead tours of North Lawndale. So people always hear about the deficits of North Lawndale, but our youth 
you know, teenagers, they give tours of the positive things happening in their neighborhood. Hey, this is where Dr. King lived when he lived in North Lawndale. Hey, you know, here's where Dr. King spoke at. This is my school. This is Sal's Hoagies, better than Subway. Here's where I eat every day. Just giving people, um, the youth are the best stakeholders of the community. So yes. our youth give tours of their neighborhood. Hi, this is Charles. You mentioned that uh, you work with the police, which is good because we need all facets and everybody to be involved to fix some of the problems. So what do you find to be some of the things that, uh, in talking with them and things that you see that we could do to actually improve the relations between uh, the community and police? You know, I think just you know, having a police badge, you know, it gives you a platform to amplify who you are. So if you're a good person, you know, having a police badge will you know, amplify your platform to do good. If you're a bad person, having a police badge will give you a, a platform to amplify wickedness, man. We need to see it like that. Um, I think that, um, of course, our police are people, but I think a lot of times in our community, you know, we, yeah, if my brother gets pulled over by a cop, his, his, his reaction is just going to be totally negative because he just doesn't like talking to cops. Nothing you can do about it. You know, it's just how he feels. I don't want to talk to them. But I, what I think is that, um, more and more, once police officers start taking cultural immersion trainings in communities that they serve, more the more people can see them actually, you know, uh, police friendly, officer friendly, like eating in their local community, going to games, supporting the local community. I think it's going to take. It's not going to be overnight, but I think it's going to build a better relationship. But it's going to start by um, by them just uh, just taking the initiative to be more involved, more engaged, and, and meeting people where they're at. It's a, when you arrest somebody, it's a high stressful situation, but when you're actually walking through a community and meeting somebody when you're just moving through, you can actually you know, see who that person is. Right. So it's, what you're saying is kind of like, what are you doing when you're not arresting people? Those, those in-between times are important. And I agree with that uh, wholly. I think that, you know, we just need to keep in mind that we as citizens play a part because you talk about eating in the community, but we have seen some things in the news where people are like, we don't want to serve you or get out. So we need to uh, be open enough to push back against that as well. But I, I like the approach, John. So, Jamal, t- tell our listeners how they can get involved in, in, in what you're trying to do. Because I, I don't think it's just Chicago. I think you're doing something that's going to reach the world someday. Well, I appreciate you saying that, man. People can um, – there's a block in the hood everywhere. And yeah, I agree, man. Kids are isolated in Panama and South Africa. They're isolated in Philadelphia. Um, but you can get involved at our website, which is formyblock.org. That's formyblock.org. Um, you know, we – we have direct, we have initiatives that get, that we help our block clubs. Now, if you want to volunteer in Chicago, we're really like the on-ramp to volunteering because there's so many block clubs that need help cleaning alleys, you know, shoveling for seniors, painting abandoned houses, advocating for stop signs, getting speed bumps in their blocks. There's so many people that need What about so the runs? Help. The runs? You're not mentioning the runs. You get up yeah, early in the morning and run. Wants to run. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, it's always something simple, man. So every weekend we run through a different neighborhood three miles. So you can join us on a weekend run Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock. Um, that's, just get involved at formoplive.org and see a list of our initiatives. We're lighting up King Drive for the winter. Yeah. Anybody that wants to help put holiday lights on King Drive from, from Garfield all the way to 95th, we're going to put some holiday lights and some helicopter lights up. Jamal, that's Jamal <laughs> Cole. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, you listen to Black and Right on AM560, The Answer. We now return to Black and Right on AM560. Here are Charles Love and John Anthony. Welcome back. I mean, that time just flew by, Charles. What? I mean, where did it go? Maybe we had to ask for six hours. We need, maybe you we can need cover six. what you want to do. 
<laughs> if you're just joining us, we've been talking all day, two hours now. It's not we're no longer a one hour show. We're two hours. We've been talking about policing. Um, we've we've had very good conversation with our, all of our guests today. Um, we had the chief of police, former chief of police from Gurney, uh, Kevin Woodside. Uh, we had my good friend uh, Eric Muldrow from Cold Red Conversations. Uh, Heather McDonald. I mean, that was that was pretty cool. And then we had um, Dr. Slosher and my good buddy Jamal Cole from My Block, My Hood, My City. My Block, My Hood, My City. What did you think about today's show, Charles? I thought it was uh, informative. I thought that um, we, uh, I would love to, like I mentioned to you before, I would love to have they, they chickened out. The antagonist? But to have had, yes, to have an antagonist, somebody to call in and say, and push back if they disagree Brian. and say whatever they want. Yeah, Brian didn't call me. What, what happened? We'll chicken. have to talk to him offline. Wow, you called him a chicken. <laughs> but, you know, we got a couple minutes here. Um, we got to, I mean, you want to finish up whatever you yeah, want to oh, say yeah. about no, police, right. but we got to talk about uh, what, what's coming what, up. The show's coming well, why don't up. You do, why, no, why don't you do that now? And okay. then I'll, I'll end the, the right, show with the so, police. Uh, we got, uh, we, uh, this is kind of a series of uh, one topic shows we're doing to kind of dig deep into the issues and talk about what the problems are. Yeah. So we're going to do uh, a show on immigration. Uh-oh. Bring on a bunch of uh, immigrants, have them tell their story about their uh, love for America and kind of give us us laymen and us, you know, you know what do you call it? The uh, people who've only been in America and don't have any other experiences, a way to understand what people that see, see America through the eyes of an immigrant. I think that would be interesting. I think that's going to be good. Yeah. And our religious um, episode to talk about um, what, if any, role with religious leaders have in, in dealing with the cultural issues. So it should be a fun time. Yeah. Are you going to use that clip from um, Dr. Wallace? Uh, I think we'll, we might have Dr. Wallace come in. Yeah, he felt we, we cut him off the last time. Come in and, and, and be able to expound a bit on it. But I do love the racism in America. But this is beyond racism. This is racism, class, income, policing, gender issues, everything. Just yeah. You know, everything that the culture is pushing. You know, I talk about it moving to the left. What should they say? Should they say nothing? Should they be in the pulpit saying, I have to preach what the Bible says or, or stick with my religion and push back against things I don't believe. Or maybe they should be there saying Trump sucks. Like the guy, in, where was that? Where the guy put on the sign that if you're black and you vote for Trump, you have a mental illness. So they say they can't be political, oh. but they can say that, right? So you Go know, it's got to be interesting to get uh, religious leaders' aspects on uh, the culture. Uh, I, I, and the final one, which, I mean, oh, this yeah. one is, I think, is going to be, we're going to blow it out of the You've been waiting on that one. I, I, you know, you, we've both been waiting on this one. Talk to us about all of the exits. Yeah, we got uh, the founder of Jexit, the founder of the Exodus movement, uh, the founders of Lexit. Uh, we got, uh, what's his name? Brandon Straka. We're going to talk to all the people who are calling themselves former Democrats about why they're leaving, similarities and differences between the groups, what they're working on, and uh, how you can uh, jump out in the fray if you're afraid. You know, it's going to be encouraging for those people who are, not conservatives and not Republicans, but they don't feel comfortable with the left anymore. Kind of give them a lesson of what they can do and where they can go and where they can feel comfortable going forward. I can't wait. I think all of those shows are going to be some great shows. Uh, we just we just want to thank you guys for allowing us to, <laughs> as your seat breaks. <laughs> thank oh, you guys for allowing fall. us to come on to two hours. Uh, this is what this is my final thoughts. How about we start doing police ride alongs? How about we go to police meetings? How about we get involved and understand so that we can have a better relationship with the policing agencies throughout our state. Um, I think, I think when you look at that, I think we can have a, I, I think the problem is 
everybody's talking over each other. Nobody wants to have that conversation. And I think it's time to have a conversation. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for Black and Right. If you missed any part of the show today, or if you've missed any of our other shows, you can listen to all of our past episodes at 560theanswer.com. You can find us on Facebook at Black and Right, J. Anthony Speaks. Charles, where you at? C. Douglas Love 3. Download the podcast and listen there. That's how they're tracking us. Yes, listen sir. to the podcast. You can hear all the old shows. We'll see you next week. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.